In the reading this morning from Isaiah, the opportunity for salvation seems to be opening up to a wider audience, new territory, more accepting of foreigners. As the Israelites return from Babylonian exile, this third book of Isaiah offers something for those outside the Jewish tent, at least for those who are willing to enter into that covenant with God and agree to keep his commandments. It is sort of a redefining of the traditional norms, adapting to this new age. Jesus acts in a similar way in the first part of our gospel lesson, where he talks about the pureness of heart and how that is more important than following arbitrary laws. He's not throwing away the old laws, but is rather expanding or shedding new light, fresh eyes, on what it is that God is really expecting of us as we enter into this new messianic age. It isn't the level of cleanliness of our hands that is important, or the cleanliness or uncleanliness of what goes into our mouths, but what comes out. The words, the feelings, the actions, those are what count. And all of this fits in nicely with what our image of what God is like, and what Jesus must have been like as he moved about preaching and teaching and helping others to enter the kingdom. There's a phrase that I'm sure is familiar to many of us. What would Jesus do? Back in 1881, theologian Charles Spurgeon used it several times in a sermon. What would Jesus do? He attributed the words back to a much older book, The Imitation of Christ, which was written back in the first part of the 15th century. And in the 1990s, in Michigan, a youth group leader started what most of us might remember as the most recent resurgence of the phrase. And we might remember those bracelets and bumper stickers posing that important question to anyone who might see it. What would Jesus do? And it was that phrase that came into my head when I started to look at our gospel passage for today. Here we have Jesus pursuing his ministry and we have come to expect him to act in certain ways, in certain situations. And in every case, if we might ask, what would Jesus do? He does the right thing, the patient thing, the kind and understanding and empathetic thing. He sets this amazing example, placing a high bar for all of us to aspire to with our own behavior, indeed, with our own thoughts, deep in our hearts so that we might avoid spitting out the evil intentions that might defile us. But then, in our reading today, Jesus does the unexpected, and not in a good way. In his response to this Canaanite woman, he acts, or fails to act, and speaks in a way that we would say Jesus shouldn't do. As we look at the passage again, we can see that Jesus has entered into Gentile territory, but he is preaching and teaching to his Jewish followers. And a Gentile, a woman, a Canaanite, is following the group. And she seems to know something about Jesus because she uses the name Lord. She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. And she asks him to cure her daughter who's being tormented by a demon. And at first, Jesus completely ignores this woman. She comes addressing him as Lord, and he doesn't even answer her. 
And the disciples urge him to send her away because she keeps shouting at them, annoying them. She's a nuisance. And by definition, as a woman and as a Gentile and of different ethnicity, she is unclean. Now we also have to remember that Canaanites and Israelites were not friends. This was not friendly territory that Jesus had moved into. So the urging of the disciples and what follows would not have been unusual for that day and age. But Jesus' silence does not deter the woman, and she asks again, pleading for mercy for herself and help for her child. And Jesus responds with an explanation of sorts, but he couples that explanation with what is nothing less than a racial slur. There's no way to sugarcoat it. He wasn't joking. He wasn't using some term of endearment. Jesus uses the term that was common in those times for Jews to use when they referred to Gentiles, dogs. So here is this woman in desperate need, and she has three strikes against her. She's the wrong gender and the wrong class and the wrong race to be speaking to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He lets her know in no uncertain terms that he is not going to help her. He denies her three times. Might sound familiar. And how can we explain this? Well, Jesus' fundamental mission was to the nation of Israel. He was living into that mission. Jesus had come to fulfill God's promise to the chosen people. If God's new life was to come to the world, it needed to come through Israel. And later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will give the disciples a different mission, to take the word to all the nations of the world. But at this point in his ministry, the mission of Jesus and his disciples is only to the Jews. But despite the context, Jesus' reaction is unexpected in a very un-Jesus-like way. And in fact, Jesus' behavior towards this woman makes me really uncomfortable. And I think there are two reasons for that. We all know that this is not the way to treat people. But the discomfort stems from the knowledge that most of us have, at some time and at some place, treated someone this way. I would guess that most of us can remember a time, or perhaps many times, when we ignored or taunted or acted in an un-Jesus-like manner to someone. And perhaps we felt justified in the moment, perhaps it was culturally acceptable, or we were under peer pressure, but deep down we knew we were wrong. And that awareness and twinge of guilt that we feel shows that we knew the right thing and didn't do it. And I, that's what causes that knot in my stomach as I read this passage. And there's something else, another reason this passage makes me uncomfortable, and it isn't Jesus' actions, but his lack of action. When the woman first calls out to him, Jesus doesn't answer her plea. He doesn't even acknowledge her. He ignores her, and his disciples urge him to send her away. He is ready to dismiss her. And I think it is again safe to say that there are a few of us here who might have not been in the position of this, who might now have been in the position of this woman, where we have asked Jesus for help, prayed to him, pleaded with him for guidance or healing or some kind of answer, and have heard nothing. To pray to a Lord that we love and believe in and to have no response, it can be devastating. And we might wonder, why does he not answer us? 
Are we not worthy? Are we not a part of Jesus' mission? Are we outsiders that do not merit his love and grace? And it is in those dark moments that we need to look back at this story and remember what it is the woman does. She doesn't give up. She doesn't walk away. She persists. Her faith, and we're not even sure how or where she has established this faith, her faith is so strong that she refuses to give up. And neither should we. Because it is that faith that is ultimately what gets Jesus' attention. It is faith that brings about Jesus' response to her prayer. So how can we, when we receive no response from Jesus, how can we, in our dark moments, where it seems he has turned his back on us, when we feel that he's not listening, how can we remain steadfast in our own faith? That's a very good question. It's something I wonder about all the time. When I read this passage, it brings to mind the prayer of humble access, which we say in just a few minutes in this right one service, just before communion. And we say, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. That line is talking about humility, about being humble. And the Canaanite woman, even in her persistence, remains humble before Jesus. We expect Jesus to work to fix everything, to work these huge miracles, feed thousands, heal everybody. And he is certainly capable of that. But perhaps if we lower our sights just a little bit and take more notice of all the smaller daily miracles in our lives, the food on our tables, the clothes on our backs, the beauty of nature, we might not feel quite as left out. If we work on our own humility, we might be better equipped to appreciate all that God has to offer us and notice that he is there. He does love us. It just may not be in the way that we expect. And as we notice all of God's beauty and grace, our faith, it can increase, and we begin to notice more miracles happening. Maybe not the specific ones we were hoping for, but perhaps something that gives us a nudge in that direction. And as that gains momentum, we might just have the energy and resources to work together as a church, as a community, and help make miracles happen for other people. We can feed thousands. We can put clothes on people's backs. We can house people and educate them and help answer their prayers. And they, in turn, can help answer ours. And that gratitude, that knowledge that we are indeed loved and cared for, by God and by our neighbors, that feeds our faith. Because it is that faith, when it is strong and grounded and filled with the love of God, it is that same faith that gives us the strength when we find ourselves in those difficult situations, when we are tempted to turn our backs or marginalize a group or treat someone with contempt, to ask ourselves that question. What would Jesus do?